It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. We've all seen the films. Killer robots turning on their hubristic human masters. Autonomous, sentient machines have long been fruitful territory for terrifying dystopian worlds. From iRobot, to The Matrix, to The Terminator. I'll be back. Robots are always the bad guys in these stories, which makes them good entertainment, but most of us know deep down that such machine-based carnage is probably unrealistic. But even those of you not worried about robotic global domination might still be worried about something else. Will robots, you might ask, take all our jobs? Will robots render humans increasingly obsolete? We're here to tell you not to worry. The robots are most definitely coming. And we'll explain why that's absolutely a good thing. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. Today, how a new generation of robots will shape the future of human life. From making cities safer and more efficient. With autonomous driving cars, we can organize the flow of traffic so that you get less congestion, greener cities, you get better deliveries. But at the same time, we can organise, for instance, emergency transportation. To helping those who can't walk or need medical attention. A robot can play two roles. It can help provide quantitative measurement, which is something that's lacking in rehab. And the second piece is to provide an opportunity for self-therapy. And how future robots are being designed to work with people instead of replacing them. My research aims to reverse engineer the human mind that enable machines to emulate some of the characteristics that make us as humans effective team members. Thankfully, human journalists are still very much in employment. Guiding me through this subject this week is The Economist's resident robot expert and innovation editor, Paul Markili. Paul, why do you think so many people are fascinated and possibly even fearful of robots? Well, it's science fiction, isn't it? And the robots that we have in our mind are humanoid. You know, they, they look like the things that came out of television and off the movie screen. But reality is most robots are sort of pretty boring bits of kit. They're just mechanical arms or they're sometimes just even boxes that zoom around on, on wheels. Or they may even sit on a production line and they just look like bits of machinery whizzing away and doing things. And that's the reality of what robots are. So you've been watching this field for some time. You know, why is it that robots and automations are things that we're talking about now? Why are they gaining momentum at this particular time? There's several trends coming together. 
One is that the labour market is changing greatly. We have this so-called great resignation where millions of people are giving up their jobs to do something different, probably in part caused by all the lockdowns from COVID. We're also seeing um, big labour shortages as well. The rise of e-commerce has really put a strain on warehouses in particular. And a lot of people now just don't want to do these sort of dirty, dangerous, boring and dull jobs or even strenuous ones. And the result of that is what we're seeing from companies now is that the biggest thing driving automation is not the need to reduce wage costs so much, but just the sheer difficulty of employing people. And on the other side of the coin, what you've got is the robots are getting better. Society is changing as well. I mean, we're getting older and greyer. We need more help with things. So this ageing society hasn't got the number of carers and the people that we need to look after us. And so robots will do some of those jobs. And it is actually more efficient for robots to do these things. I mean, they don't get tired. They don't take coffee breaks. They can work 24-7. So it's actually much better these jobs are done by robots than by us humans. All right, well, that leads on very neatly to the concern and fear that some people have about robotics and robots. Are they here to take all of our jobs? They're not going to take all of our jobs. They'll take some jobs we didn't do. But automation generally creates jobs. I mean, I'm old enough to remember telephone exchanges, and there were thousands of people, if not millions of people, used to work in telephone exchanges. And then the exchanges became automated. Now, you can't say that jobs in telecoms have decreased as a result. They've actually exploded with the automation and the computerization of telecoms. And much the same happened with every other form of automation. It always has that in history. I see no reason why it will change. Now, we, we had a presentation by some robotics experts at the American Association for the Advancement of Science about some of the ways robots are being employed and how they're empowering people to work better and along the way creating new jobs. If we actually go in and compare jobs and robots, then you will see that there's almost perfect correlation between when we have a strong economy, we grow the jobs and we buy more technology. Henrik Christensen is a professor and the director of robotics at the University of California, San Diego. He's also the editor of America's National Roadmap for Robotics, which is a detailed plan to guide progress towards an automated future. But it's not true that we're seeing this replacement. Today, we're using robots to empower people. And just explain how that works. Well, so I think the first misconception that that we have this very high degree of, of automation So if you go and look at even the most highly automated factories, which are automotive manufacturing, there is one robot for every 10 people. So the vision of the lights out factory is very far into the future. But typically what will happen is that we will have jobs that are what we would call dirty, dull and dangerous. And it typically has to do, for instance, with heavy lifting. So if you do these jobs that are very repetitive or very heavy lifting, you are basically hurting your elbows, your shoulders, your back. Those we use robots to take away the heavy lifting, to take away the inconvenient moves, 
while there's still a human there to supervise and do all of these things, there are also other people like that do the service, there's people that do the programming. So overall, for every robot we bring in, we also bring in one to two jobs. It's interesting to hear that received wisdom about job-killing robots being challenged. But I'm also wondering about some of the ways in which investments in robotics can actually start to help people. Can you tell me a bit about how robots are becoming a more useful fixture in our lives, particularly as people increasingly live in cities? So I think it's important to think about that in urbanization, first of all, we have this high density. So the first place we'll get it is to be able to do deliveries. But the other thing we will see is also with autonomous driving cars, we can basically organize the flow of traffic so that you get less congestion, which would imply that you actually get greener cities, you get better deliveries. But at the same time, we can also now find ways of, with autonomous driving cars, with these things, organize, for instance, emergency transportation so that you're not getting stuck in regular traffic or in a traffic jam. And that's exactly what they're doing in San Diego, isn't it? They're using drones to help first responders. That's true. So in San Diego, in Chula Vista, we have it so that when you call 911, the first thing that happens is that a drone will take off from the police headquarters of a fire station, fly to the location of the incident. You get video imagery so you can see, is it a traffic accident? Is it a fire? What's going on? And then based on this, you can recruit the resources. As they deploy, they have basically the equivalent of a cell phone connection to the local traffic lights that allows them to sort of say, in five seconds, I'm at this traffic light, and then it will turn green. So they are literally communicating with the local infrastructure, such as traffic lights, to make sure that they have a smooth flow through the traffic. And is this idea scalable? I mean, is there any reason why it wouldn't work in any country beyond the United States too? No, no. So basically what you're using is that you're using telephone connections to talk to the traffic lights. So you don't have to have a massive cable network or anything like that to make this possible. You can retrofit your traffic lights with all standard 4G or 5G technology today. At the same time, the drones, you can deploy them anywhere. So you can buy whatever your favorite drone is and easily do this. So this is very deployable. The thing that has hindered it so far has been that only until recently, we didn't have the legal means. So typically you're not allowed to fly drones in urban areas for this. Now we have a possibility of opening up and making it possible for authorities to fly drones. Paul, we heard from Dr. Henrik Christensen there about deploying robots to assist emergency services. It sounds really quite intuitive and amazing. Do you see this as an idea that could take off? Well, it's, it already is. A number of emergency groups around the world are using them to find people that are lost in the bush in Australia or stuck in bogs in Britain and lost pets and things like that. That's happening quite a bit. The sort of system that you're hearing about there in San Diego, though, is more automated and more widely deployed. But the biggest problem is indeed regulation. It lags the technology. And uh, in many places, it is still against the law to operate a drone beyond your line of sight. So something like that isn't possible in many places at the moment. 
Now, as people are becoming more used to operating drones and the safety is improving and the technology improving, we will definitely see more and more of that. Also, will we be seeing autonomous lorries and deliveries, even by drones, taking over the streets? I mean, you've written about this for The Economist as well, and just even recently talking about logistics robots. I mean, how are we, we going to see that world taken over by this kind of automation? Well, what's called the last mile is already being automated. There's a number of companies at the moment make these small little boxes on wheels that trundle around on pavements. They go very slowly and you can unlock them with a cell phone when they turn up and they bought you your pizza or your shopping. These are in use already and some are now becoming much more autonomous. They're actually being monitored by people in the remote centre looking at them through cameras so they can take over. But they're now going for what you call level four where you actually don't need a human person monitoring them that's just beginning and the same will happen with autonomous delivery trucks and lorries probably eventually but it will be slow going again because regulators quite naturally want to make sure these systems are are really safe And secondly, because the way people drive in Los Angeles is a very different proposition to the way they drive in Naples, for instance. So it's not just a case of coming up with one lot of software to program them, but lots and lots of different possibilities. It will happen. The tech is capable of doing it, but it's going to take some time. Just one step further back on the logistics chain, warehouses, that has seen huge amounts of automation And it's happened much faster, I suppose, because it's not in the public setting. That's right. Well, in many warehouses, particularly what they call fulfillment centres, and these are places used by companies like Ocado and Amazon, they have quite amazing setups where thousands of goods are picked every few seconds with robots whizzing around. So in five minutes, a robot can gather all the items necessary for 50 things for an order. But the job is still largely one for a human, picking those things up and putting them in bags. Although slowly but surely, that too is now being automated. We're beginning to see with AI and better ways of picking things up, robots that do know that they don't need to drop a bag of potatoes on a box of eggs, for instance, and they know how to pick things up and how to sort them out. And these robots will be working side by side with and next to some of the sort of human pickers. And then gradually, over time, we'll see them replaced too. We will then get very close to the point that when you order something, it will turn up and it probably won't have been touched by human hand. Which is amazing to think about. You mentioned also earlier that ageing societies will be in need of more robots. What kind of robots are we going to be seeing for the elderly or people who need care? A couple of examples that spring to mind are robots that could monitor people while they're in hospital. Now, nurses are really busy, but a robot that could sort of trundle around from bed to bed, checking your vital signs and making sure you've got water or you've got things, or indeed that you could ask to uh, go and do or get something. We could quite easily begin to see that. We're already seeing robots that uh, can go around hospitals and help clean them, you know, particularly using ultraviolet light to disinfect areas. So moving that up a scale to actually uh, monitoring people is quite possible. We already have robots that help perform operations, for instance. So the technology is beginning to be trusted. For people who are infirm and elderly, robots could remind them when they need to take their drugs or their pills. 
robots could provide remote, what we now call telemonitoring, you know, connecting you to a doctor. There's an awful lot of uses, including, of course, uh, rehabilitation, which is helping you exercise. That's something that Dr. Michelle Johnson has been working on. She's the director of the Rehabilitation Robotics Lab at the University of Pennsylvania. My lab is kind of focused on looking at different types of robots. I loosely call them helper robots, the robots that are meant to touch you, provide force feedback, to hold the arm and help move the arm, as well as robots with cameras or with other types of sensors that are meant to observe your body movement and provide information about how you move to the therapist. So right now I'm in Botswana, I'm a Fulbright scholar, and one of the grants that I got was to look at the use of a very simple robot. I call it a haptic TheraDrive robot. It has four sensors on the handle. It has one motor, one position sensor. And what we did was we put this robot so that if a stroke survivor has, a, for example, an impaired limb, they can hold on to the handle. We can find how they're pushing or pulling on the robot. So the robot basically, if you're low functioning, you don't have a lot of movement, it will move and, and do more movement. If you have a lot of movement, then it will challenge you. Maybe it'll push back on you. Maybe it'll be more resistive so that you're working harder to accomplish the task. This is what we mean by intelligent. What kinds of benefits would a doctor or nurse get if they have robots like yours in their clinic? The opportunity that robots offer is one, to quantify in very small changes. Hey, the person, they were able to apply a Newton more forces or provide quantitative measurement, which is something that's lacking in rehab. And the second piece is to provide an opportunity for self-activity, self-therapy, unsupervised therapy, especially in an environment, for example, in Africa and Botswana, where we are, there's not a lot of therapists and the, the ratio to patients are low. So having a technology that allows individual or self-training and self-activity and, and exercise while providing quantitative measurement, definitely a plus and an added advantage. And, and tell me about how the patients react. I mean, where you are now, you say you're in Botswana on a research project and you're working with the robots in clinics there. How do people react when they see the, the robot in front of you? Are they intrigued or, or worried about it at all? Ah, some people are concerned. They're not sure what it is. Some people experience a bit of frustration if they struggle with the task. But for the most part, at least the patients are intrigued and excited about something that could possibly help them recover their function. Well, what do you think are some of the hardest challenges you're going to have to solve before we get to that point where robots are in clinics, easy to use, doctors and nurses are using them, patients are benefiting all over the world? 
when we think about where they're located, they're in mainly high-income countries. And even when they're in high-income countries, they're mainly in very wealthy areas within the high, not in rural places. So in order for them to be everywhere, we need to make them affordable so that everyday people might be able to purchase them. Or we need to create a buy-in so that insurance can cover them, right? Wheelchairs are everywhere because there was a decision made that these were critical items that need to be covered by insurance and that they are important tools that people with disability or people with need require. I think that's a key thing. Paul, do you see these sorts of assistive robots in healthcare developing into something like the wheelchair of the current age? Well, it is indeed possible, but as Dr. Johnson says, They've got to be made more affordable. They've got to be cheap enough to be widely used. And again, with legislation lagging technology, insurance has to address this because it's something actually that could help people get better quickly, which should, in fact, in the long term, save insurers money. But at the moment, I think they're scratching their heads a lot with this technology. And further along, I mean, it won't just be wheelchairs. Um, These sort of robotic assistant devices will be able to help people get out of wheelchairs and walk. And indeed, we're already seeing that with some medical centres, people being able to walk for the first time after they've had very serious injuries. Now, I suppose it's the uh, job of roboticists and engineers to be optimistic about the future when it comes to using robots in particular fields. But do you see downsides or barriers to robots in healthcare? You know, are, are they really going to be used? Because I mean, it's one of the most conservative industries out there. Well, uh, one of the things that clinicians indeed already worry about with telemedicine, which is literally where you just talk to them over a cell phone app or something, is does their medical professional insurance cover them for this? Because if the app is not considered the right way we're dealing with the patient, then they could be in trouble. Well, what if they handed over that to a robot? You know, does their own insurance cover that if the robot doesn't operate properly? And actually, some of these are things we do need to think carefully about and that could delay things but the benefits I think outweigh the disadvantages in the end the only problem is how people relate to this you know we're used to a a doctor or a clinician or a therapist or a nurse looking after us when it's a robot that trumbles up yeah we may think differently about this I'm, I'm sure we will But if they're working alongside medical staff, which they will be, and you can see that you're no longer running these people off their feet because they've got more time to think how things are being done properly and how to look after patients, you might see that benefit come through to you. So we'll see. Let's see how it goes. And we heard Dr. Johnson saying at the end of her interview there that one really important thing is that if and when the robots do get into healthcare, that they should become more accessible. And I feel like that's kind of an important issue. What do you think are the ways that that could happen? Because I suppose what we don't want is for this technology to be available only to the 0.1% of people who can afford to have it, right? You, You kind of want to try and make it accessible to as many people as possible. Well, I think that will happen if people can get on top of this technology and make it cheaper. I mean, many of the things that make robots work are available all over the show. You know, they're mass-produced, motors, actuators, chips, things like that. You know, they can all be bought. And some of them may be able to be manufactured in small workshops using appropriate technology. It's quite possible. The tricky bit is the software. 
that's where the really clever bit is. So maybe people need to be able to make that software that makes these robots work. The AI stuff, the stuff that's used, machine learning, that needs to be more readily available. And perhaps that should be available as a social resource. Now that would help as well. We'll be continuing our journey into the world of robotics shortly, but now it's time for a reminder that you can expand your mind even further by reading Paul's reporting in The Economist. This week, our science and tech team remotely attended the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. To read our coverage of that and much more, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. Babbage listeners will get a special introductory deal. Coming up. Advancements in robotics are already making an impact, but right now it's more like cordial coexistence than coherent collaboration. How can robots be programmed to truly work with humans? Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you look at the robots in existence today, they're far away from the terrifying image of the Terminator. They're more like this robot Hoover in NBC's workplace sitcom Superstore. If you think that robot is good at cleaning, you should see Glenn the man. Working with robots might sound like a less than appealing prospect. Because first it took my name, and then it pushed me out of the way while I was working, and now it took my spill. I mean, maybe it should be raising my child and sleeping with Jerusha. Probably because they're so different. If we look at the current state of the art and the limitations of robotics as well as AI today, the ways in which we use them are very, very narrow and prescribed. And these systems do their work essentially under constant human oversight. And the challenge with that is that they're still really quite limited in the the value that they can offer us. That's Professor Julie Shah of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She's one of a number of engineers trying to figure out how humans and machines can have more complex, natural interactions. Our end goal here isn't to replace human work with automation, but it's to enhance human capability and well-being. And that requires robot systems that move from systems that like coexist, that are literally placed next to a person to do a task, into systems that can work interdependently with us, that can anticipate what we'll need and what we'll do and be that support. So tell me how you're trying to actually do that. So my research aims to reverse engineer the human mind. We draw from cognitive science and behavioral psychology to develop structured computational models that enable machines to emulate some of the characteristics that make us as humans effective team members. In the past, we've worked with a local Boston hospital to develop decision support for a role called the resource nurse. So a resource nurse on a labor and delivery floor is basically doing the same job as an air traffic controller. 
deciding which patients go to which rooms, which nurses are assigned to which patients, and many other decisions. And when we you know, worked out the task, the job that that nurse is doing, it's actually more computationally complex than that of an actual air traffic controller. And that nurse is doing that job without any decision support. And so how we codify, use artificial intelligence and machine learning to learn from these nurses, how they solve these very, very complex resource allocation and scheduling problems is really the goal. And it's a very, very challenging AI problem. And have you got any practical examples of how you're actually working with robots? Yes, yes. So a core part of our research process is bringing many, many, many people um, into the lab to work with our, our robots. And a key part of what our robots need to do is learn each person's unique personal preferences and priorities for how they want to accomplish a task. So one of the tasks that that we bring people in to do is this sort of sandwich making assembly task where the person is preparing sandwiches at a series of four stations. And a robot has a supporting task in preparing these meals of pouring juice at each of those four stations. And you want the robot to be able to anticipate what the person will do, where they'll be working, and then plan to stay out of their way. (laughs) But also, if there's work that requires synchronization, anticipate where they'll be and just be there at the right time in the right place. For example, to hand over materials or foodstuffs at the right time. And so in this setup, we have people come into the lab, and obviously we can't take thousands or hundreds of thousands of examples of people preparing sandwiches to try to teach the robot how a person prepares sandwiches, that would be unreasonable. So one of our key challenges is enabling machines to learn with very little data about humans. So a person will come in and and prepare sandwiches in some particular way, however they want to, moving from right to left, left to right, and laying out the material in some order that, that works for them. Hey teammate, let's make some meals. I will pour juice. Please make and wrap the sandwiches. Let's start. The robot is always maintaining this belief based on what it's seen before of what we as a person will do. So based on a little bit of motion of their hand, the robot is maintaining a belief, is the person going to reach in a few seconds at station one, at station three, at station four? Please make the next sandwich at two. I am pouring juice at three. Are they going to reach for the napkin? Are they going to reach for the bread next? And much like a a human partner, if you're really unsure what your partner is going to do, and it really matters a lot to the team performance that you know what they're going to do, a person will communicate. I am pouring juice at four. I am pouring juice at four. And then based on few interactions, the robot says, got it. I finished pouring juice. And we can show, you know, bringing many, many, many people through the lab that a robot partner that is able to model human cognitive state and preferences and anticipate what a person will do makes a much, much more effective collaborator. And when you say makes a much more effective collaborator, do you mean in the cooking example, as a team, you can make sandwiches more quickly or in a better way or more efficiently in some way? That's right. So on one dimension, you want the team to perform their task efficiently. But it's also equally important, the person's perception of working with that robot. 
we need and want the person or the worker to perceive benefit of continuing to interact with the robot, to feel like that collaboration is steerable and directable and drivable by the person. It's really important for a positive future of working with these technologies. That is very much for the future, though. Right now, robots aren't as advanced as engineers would like them to be. I asked Henrik Christensen, the editor of America's National Roadmap for Robotics, what to expect in the coming years. Robotics just recently celebrated its 55th anniversary. I would say the first 45 years, they were dumb sort of mechanical things that we were using in the factories. And it's sort of the confluence of we've gotten much better cameras, we've gotten much better computing power, and we've gotten sort of artificial intelligence or machine learning techniques that had enabled us to provide a level of intelligence that we have not really seen before. Most of this has not been driven by the robotics industry. It's been driven by the cell phone industry. So our cell phones has enabled us to provide very cheap cameras, Wi-Fi, 4G and 5G that had enabled sort of this confluence. At the same time, we've also gotten much better users. The average 20-year-old person has spent 12,000 hours playing computer games. So they are instant experts on being able to actually operate these. So we have smarter users, better computing, better sensing, and that has sort of enabled this proliferation of technology to just about anywhere. It seems like we're still at the start of what's possible. Where do you see it in the next 50 years? I think we will see it impact how we think about manufacturing, which is really how do we do sort of economic growth. I think we will do it to empower people in their homes so that you can get quality of life from cradle to grave. I think we will use it environmentally to clean up the world. And at the same time, we will use it for exploration. We're already seeing this. We're going to Mars with robots. We don't need to necessarily send astronauts to Mars because robots might actually be better suited for this. We're doing this from exploration below the sea. So I see it very much. It becomes a new tool that we use to extend our life, both in terms of economic growth, in terms of curiosity, and in terms of science. But there are some challenges, of course. Uh, For example, if you've got sensors everywhere in society, do you have to worry about things like privacy? So we have committees that are looking at, you know, what is the right way of doing this? How do we make sure that if you have a camera that you're actually processing it and immediately you're throwing away the raw images? So they're never stored on disk anywhere because now you would have a privacy problem. But also we try to understand how can we design applications where you don't have to have a camera on board? So we have a a huge effort on robo-ethics, and it's very important there that this is not a committee of engineers that are trying to do this. We have philosophers, we have priests, we have social scientists that are involved in this process to make sure that we have a human-centered approach to new technology. For the last word, joining me once more is Paul Markilli, The Economist's Innovation Editor. Paul, you've heard what all of the experts have had to say about where the technology is going, where the issues are, what kinds of things we should be looking out for. But tell me, what are you going to be looking out for in this next generation of robotics? What areas are you sort of scanning for the next robotic revolution? We're really watching three things. One is sensors. 
you know, we need better ones, cheaper ones, faster ones, more robust ones. And, you know, they're coming. Things that used to be the size of a bucket are now being shrink down to the size of a chip. The other is AI. We need to see that working. And we need to see machine learning, learning, you know, what people want so that robots know what human beings are, not so much learning by rote, move this to that, to there, to then. You know, it's a new science, it's a it's a big science, and it's going to have to become a lot more comprehensive to deal with many of the things that are happening. And thirdly, we need to see legislation become more accommodating to robotic technology, to actually enhance and encourage it more than to sort of stay in its way. You know, if you're experimenting with driverless cars at the moment and you want to take one across the border in America, well, you still have to have a safety driver on board. Well, that's okay for the time being. But if you go from one state to the next, you encounter a completely different set of regulations, which doesn't really help. And also, I find the idea of robo-ethics interesting as well, which Dr. Christensen said at the end there, where if robots are going to be able to do things in the presence of humans and make choices, then there's going to be some value judgments ultimately if they're going to be useful. I find the idea of developing all of that beyond the technologists quite interesting because I suppose people who develop technology don't often have to think about these sorts of things so far in advance. Um, now, Listening to everything that's been said in this show, I'm getting quite excited about the potential of robots. But uh, Paul, we all know that you're the first to burst the bubble if we're getting too excited on the science desk on anything. So can I just ask you just to conclude, should we be excited about robots or not? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. I think we do need to be excited about robots. I welcome them. I've played around with a few automated robotic devices. I wasn't particularly impressed with the one I tried cleaning the house because it kept falling down the stairs, but I gather they're better than that now. But I'm still excited about them. I mean, more so that really in the future, what they mean is we're going to be able to do more of the interesting things at work and not the boring, dirty, dangerous and strenuous things. Well, I'm all for that. Paul, thank you very much for joining us. That's a pleasure. Thanks also to Henrik Christensen, Michelle Johnson and Julie Shah. And thank you for listening. While you're with us, please give us a rating on your podcast app. It really helps us to understand what you're enjoying and what you'd like to hear more of in the future. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin. The mixing and sound design was by Nico Rofast and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, still a human in our London office. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.